Ever wonder the true power of sports? Well, you come to the right place. Welcome to the Sports for Social Impact podcast. I'm David Thibodeau, and I believe that by exploring the intersection between sport and society, we can better leverage the sport industry for maximum impact. We explore what sports true power is to understand the impacts on and the impacts of sports on society. Join me as we learn how sports can influence important policy areas such as the environment, transportation, education, and so much more. Welcome back to the Sports for Social Impact podcast. We are so excited to be back for season four. I can't believe that we're now heading into the fourth year uh, of doing this. Um, it's been quite the journey. We've had so many different and amazing conversations with not-for-profits, grassroots sport organizations, international sport federations, and so many others from various levels of sport. And I really try to have on a diversity of voices from um, all corners of the globe and to, to explore how people are using sport to uplift communities. So this is the 70th episode of the podcast. So I think that just goes to show how many people are doing work in this space and and you know this is really just the surface of the sport for development sector. So I, I hope this podcast keeps pushing this conversation in new directions and keeps being part of um, bringing sport for development to the forefront of, of the sport industry. So today's topic is something that is very important to me personally. You know, tackling the climate crisis is the greatest challenge that we are facing. And there are many different areas of focus, you know, like, like the circular economy, waste reduction, plastic pollution, carbon emissions, protecting biodiversity, and many more things. We have talked about a lot of these topics on the podcast before, but we haven't really talked about where to start. So I was excited to have today's guest on today because he's been working in this space for a long time. Uh, he practically... Um, you know, he did implement a sustainability program for a sports team himself and also developed a toolbox to help organizations start their own sustainability journey. So Damian Fox has spent most of his life competing on the water with 38 years of experience in the ocean and dinghy racing industry. In that time, he has logged 46,000 nautical miles as a professional racing sailor and has participated in 20 plus transatlantics 11 around the world races, and, the, and is the holder of numerous world records. Damien is the sustainability program manager for the 11th hour racing team, and which was entered uh, in the 2022-2023 ocean race. And he also developed the 11th hour racing sustainability toolbox. So the 11th hour racing team, their mission is to build a high performance ocean racing team with sustainability at the core of all team operations inspiring positive action among sailing and coastal communities and global sport fans to create a long-lasting change for ocean health. So now a little bit about 11th hour racing. So 11th hour racing works to mobilize sports, maritime, and coastal communities with an innovative approach to inspire solutions for the ocean. Since 2010, 11th hour racing has been harnessing the power of sport to promote collaborative systemic change through three primary areas of engagement. Sponsorships, grantees, and ambassadors. So without further ado, here is the conversation with Damien.
So welcome today to my guest, Damien Foxall, who is the Sustainable Program Manager at uh, 11th Hour Racing. And he was responsible for developing the their free resource called Sustainability Toolbox. And we'll get into all of that. But first, uh, Damien, uh, t- t- tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, David. Um, thank you very much for having me on the show. And um, I think you're further out west, but I'm here in Quebec, uh, the beautiful province of Quebec. And uh, winter is on setting and kind of the sailing season is behind us. We're going to be talking about my sport today, which is uh, sailing. I've been involved, I think, in about 11 round the world races and kind of embedded in there or multiple transatlantics. And I've pretty much sailed most oceans in the world across uh, kind of a, a long career, which started in my in my uh, young years growing up in Southwest Ireland and, and brought me all the way to Quebec uh, for the Quebec Samara race. Um, so these are just some of the things that we're going to be here maybe talking about over the next uh, over the next hour, because I don't expect that every one of our audience here will understand the sport of sailing and and kind of the global impact that we can have. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um excited to, to dive into all those topics with you. And um yeah, no, I, I am further west than you. I'm in Calgary and it's uh not I I've heard there's been quite a bit of snow in Montreal over the last couple of days, but we don't have much here in, in Calgary yet. So I'm so <laughs> keeping my fingers crossed that it that it stays off for a little bit longer. But um yeah, I'm so happy that you're able to come on the podcast and and join us. So um so let's get into it. So start off by telling us about 11th hour racing. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of people may not uh, know exactly what, you know, the work that you do and sort of your mission, uh, the mission behind 11th hour racing. So tell us about, about that. Yeah. So the, uh, the 11th hour racing is actually a philanthropic organization that promotes ocean health and sustainability and sustainable uh, marine communities um, through the, uh, through sport. Uh, And so specifically through sailing, but they have also um, great collaborations with, for instance, Protect Our Winters, POW, um, the surf leagues uh, and our bridge and, you know, exploring other sports, but really the core, um, you know, and, and the origin of this organization, 11th hour racing team, uh, sorry, 11th hour racing based in Newport uh, is how to reach out to a broader audience through sport. And we know that a huge percentage of our global population follows sport of some kind, right? Baseball or football or soccer, whatever it is, uh, but a much smaller percentage follows science. And what we're trying to do is, use this global reach that sport has to uh, bring across uh, important messages around, you know, through a scientific approach about sustainability and why we need to transition to a better future and how we get there. Okay. <laughs> and I would just make sure maybe one difference there, I, I even made the mistake myself, is um, 11th Hour Racing do many grant funded programs um, and we are one of them. We're the 11th Hour Racing team and we've been funded and supported to um, enter the ocean race, which is the um, really, for us, it's the Everest of ocean racing. Uh, it comes around every three or four years and we just we just won it this uh, this summer. It's, uh, it's the longest event in any sport, uh, about 45,000 miles from start to finish. Typically it takes between six or nine months, depending on the year. Uh, and uh, this is a huge undertaking and we've been uh, attempting to win this event with this team uh, for the last 12 years, and we finally achieved on the third attempt, um, uh, just finishing again this year in, in July. And so uh, 11th Hour Racing team is is um, is basically supported by 11th Hour Racing, who do many, many more things and really have a ground roots to, um, to other programs which support at a bigger level, really around, again, this idea of ocean health and sustainability. 
Amazing. And um, so I, yeah, um, Protect Our Winters and Ocean Race have both been on the podcast before. So, um, you know, if the, the, the listeners of the podcast, um, you know, can go back and listen to those episodes, or if you, if you heard them before, definitely, um, interesting that these are kind of all connected and working together to achieve a greater, um, you know, a greater, uh, a greater goal that everyone can work towards together, which is, you know, tackling climate change, um, and, and building a more sustainable world. So I think that's really incredible. And so there's, you know, for, for 11th hour racing, um, and I, so there's kind of like three areas of focus that from my understanding, there's like the, and there's the there's an ambassador program, there's grant program, and there's a sponsorship strategy or sponsorship, um, program. Um, and you know, I think, you know, I'm specifically interested in, you know, more of two of them, but I, I think like this, this, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the sponsorships because, um, you know, more and more we've seen, you know, I think protect, protect our winters is now pretty forward in, uh, you know, putting this out there that, you know, especially winter sports should not be taking money from oil and gas companies. So I'm just wondering how, like why that, what, like, you know, to elephant hour racing is the sponsorship. So from my understanding, you, you sponsor sport programs and other things like that, um, sort of to offer another way of getting off of those, those maybe bad types of sponsorship. So I was like wondering like what your thoughts were on, on, on that aspect of it and how the sport industry can kind of try to move away from, from those types of sponsorships. No, I think it's, I mean, we're getting straight into the, we're getting straight into the guts of this straight away. I love it. Um, and just to be clear, again, you know, I rep- I'm a sailor. I represent and had work for 11th Hour Racing Team. We are actually sponsored by the organization, 11th Hour Racing. So I, I'm going to, we've, I've worked with them for almost eight years now, and I, but I'm going to be very careful not to, uh, uh, not to represent them, but I can, I can certainly uh, give you a deeper understanding of how they work. And I think why com- coming to your question, why philanthropy can be a really important key to un- unlocking some actions that are maybe more difficult through uh, civil society, through maybe government, uh, which can get us so far in policymakers, and of course, through the commercial um, you know, economy. You know, uh, some things, you know, every stakeholder has got a different role to play. And what's really interesting from our perspective, so you know, when we line up to starting to a, to a race, um, you know, it typically takes us a couple of years to get there. We're either training or building or preparing not only the boat, but our team and everything that goes around it. So with, we're talking about a team of about 30 people um, typically. And so we've got the athletes themselves, the sailors. We've got the technicians who build the boat, maintain the sails, repair the sails, the engineers. They're really high-tech machines with a lot of IT on board. And then, of course, you know, everything goes with, um, with um, you know, procure- procurement and, and supply chains. Uh, and, uh, and so our competitors are doing the very best, you know, very same thing. So it's, it's just like I would say the best parallel I can draw is like Formula One or, or motorsport because we're heavily reliant on techn- technology, the machine itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the question is, how can we do this better? Uh, and what's really interesting is when we join an event as 11th Hour Racing Team with a specific deliverable to, okay, do our best on the race course, but more than that, do our best on the race race course in the very best way possible. In other words, how can we look at better procurement? How we can we embed sustainable sourcing across everything we do and ask 
some of those difficult questions of the events, for instance, you know, what are your climate action plans? You know, what's your waste and circularity plans? And, you know, what about biodiversity and, you know, marine mammal mitigation on the race course? We, you know, we're, we're very privileged, I would say, to have a sponsor where we're not selling a product or a service or, you know, promoting, uh, you know, promoting a product. Our core deliverable is to collaborate with our supply chain, collaborate with our competitors, with the organizations uh, and find solutions. And I think it allows us to come at this from a neutral or a more neutral standpoint, at least, where we have sort of not necessarily commercial axe to grind, but, uh, you know, and I think it's unenabled us, not just ourselves, but along with our competitors to have a, a very kind of refreshing, new and neutral standpoint to, to this conversation. And so having benefited um, through 11th Hour Racing Team and, you know, leading the sustainability program now for, for basically eight years. Um, I've really come to believe that philanthropy uh, is, is a part of the puzzle. And as you suggested, or were asking, in, embedded in that original question, you know, uh, how does this, does this help to wean us off maybe less healthy funding streams? Of course it does. Um, and I would just say though, uh, I, I think it's always, um, I always sort of say that, um, uh, you know, sort of perfection is the, is a real barrier to action. Uh, and uh, and I think when we think about who we want to be involved with and should we, you know, draw in funding or even collaborate or even speak to some of these more difficult industries, we need to be very careful that we're not sort of whiter than white or trying to be whiter than white. In fact, uh, we've had some of these conversations right up front uh, and sort of, okay, you know, who do we want to be our, I'm going to give an example, a very specific one. Who do we want to, who do we want to be our clothing supplier? And of course, Patagonia jumps right to the top, amazing company. Um, uh, and, you know, they provide some of the very best outdoor gear, um, you know, but then very quickly go, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, we're just putting our arms around one of our peers. They're going to give us great product, but are we really going to be influencing uh, at a significant scale, what they're already doing super well. They're the leaders. Uh, and so uh, this was a conversation that we had internally and for and other reasons, but including this, we decided to go with another supplier uh, who were further sort of back on the, on the voyage towards the sustainable transition. Uh, and again, it's about, you know, I think it's okay to, you know, to uh, work with, to be, you know, to include in your supply chain funding stream or otherwise uh, people who are, you know, sort of struggling to get along the way, so long as they have the real willingness to try to be transparent and to, you know, collaborate on the solutions. Um, and I think that's something that we all need to be very, very careful of. Um, you know, sort of the environmentalism of the 1960s, I think, is more of a trap than a guide. I think mm. we need, you know, to roll up our sleeves. We need to be careful of incrementalism and small steps will not get us there. But sometimes the actions and the big actions have to start with the small steps and people get persuaded as we as we go along the way. So, yeah, hopefully that sort mm. of... Uh, answers but maybe avoids all the question yeah yeah no i think you bring up a good point too um you know that 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 idea that um you know we can do a lot better with a million people doing some things imperfectly 
than one person doing everything perfectly, right? Like I think, you know, yes, obviously, you know, we do need to make some major, so, you know, some major steps to address the climate the climate crisis, but, um, you know, it's, yeah, you, you know, working together, I think we can do a lot more and go a lot further. And and then eventually those those small steps will add up and to something much bigger. So, um, and yeah, and yeah, as you say, you know, we're bringing more people, bringing more people into that, um, into that movement, into that area, into that space, um, gives us the opportunity to push that needle, every, you know, each time a little bit closer to where it needs to be going. So, um, and quite often, some of those organizations, the big organizations, you know, even if they have the biggest challenges, the biggest impacts, can be quite often quite questionable. Um, you know, given the right approach, they're the ones who also can make the biggest change. Um, and so, um. I think we kind of need to be honest with ourselves where we are. I also, you know, you've mentioned it there and I did mention it, you know, in the previous reply, but, uh, you know, incrementalism will only get us so far. We need systemic change and we, you know, we have to, you know, and it's going to hurt probably mm -hmm. not all the time, but a lot of the time. Um, and we got to, you know, to, to have real change, I think we need to be brave. Um, and I think athletes and sports are by definition brave. Uh, and so, we've got to apply that courage, you know, as much off the field and off the racetrack as we do for those 60 minutes of the game, or in our case, six months <laughs> of the race course. Um, and so uh, I think where we need to, another pitfall is to sort of try to use sustainability and net zero targets as a sort of way to justify the status quo. Uh, and um, you know, this was kind of maybe getting into sort of the the, the pitfall of greenwashing or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in whatever sector. Uh, I think, you know, we, we clearly need to be brave and we need to accept that some things are incremental and require a lot of effort uh, and it's going to be hard and frustrating a lot of the time. And some, some things need, quite frankly, kind of to be cleared off the table and redesigned ground up um, and... Uh, uh, in, embedded in there a lot of challenges a lot of pain and discomfort but also a lot of fantastic opportunities uh, financial and otherwise i totally agree i totally agree and i think um just going that you know that just so you're saying that too it reminded me of um well you know first i think one thing i said congratulations for winning the ocean race earlier summer so first first off congratulations and then uh, so that reminded me of um uh, you know, some of the work that Ocean Race was doing and, um, you know, they were collecting, um, you know, samples from around the world, right? And, um, you know, um, measuring uh, uh, microplastics in oceans, surf uh, sea surface temperatures, and a couple other things like that. So I'm curious to know, um, was the 11th hour race, was the 11th hour racing team participating in collecting those samples? And if so, which ones were you, which ones were you doing? I'm, I just, just out of curiosity. <laughs> No, no, amazing. I think we're talking here really about citizen science, the role that we can play. And I think this is quite unique to the kind of more nature-based um, sports or the sports that are being played out in nature. And I think, you know, we mentioned power earlier on and the opportunities that those athletes, especially going deeper into the mountains, have to see things that, you know, the typical citizen doesn't get to see. And this is really the case for the sailing world where, you know, even if you take into account global shipping uh, and the fishing fleet, where really are in parts of the world where even those fleets typically don't get to. Uh, and so when we're thinking about science and science on board, this is really about getting raw data. You know, 
what is the temperature of the ocean uh, at sort of 60 degrees south in the middle of the Pacific? And how has that changed over the last couple of editions of the race? Um, and, and, you know, so that was quite a bit of a, I'm always a bit of a grumpy skeptic initially and um, quickly <laughs> persuaded. And um, and so initially when we're sort of putting science gear on the boats, I was like, you know, seriously, like there's thousands of ships, hundreds of thousands of ships around the world. Why don't they just use those boats instead? Uh, but as I dug into it and one, you know, statistician and bio, a marine biologist said to me, he said, listen, you know, uh, protocol and methodology will change over the time, but hard data is will be valuable and even more valuable. Uh, uh, you know, will be valuable forever and even even more valuable over time. We need, um, you know, raw data to establish historic baselines, etc. So in terms of climate change, obviously we're using ice cores, uh, but then you need to measure it against hard data. What's quite interesting for us is when we throw an oceanographic. Uh, boy weather boy over the back of the boat about 12 hours later we're downloading the weather for the southern ocean for that bit of the ocean we just threw the sensor over and the weather we're getting on board those few hours later is better because it's being reinitialized by that uh, by that input so that's really exciting we've been doing that for uh, a few decades now i would say uh, but we've, um, you know, upped the ante, if you like, and now we're incorporating uh, more ocean, other oceanographic um, sensors, uh, you know, salinity, chlorophyll, uh, microplastics. And in fact, we did some eDNA testing, uh, so environmental DNA testing in a couple of the legs uh, in the last ocean race. So this is a, a broader sort of, um, you know, it's, I guess, an element of a broader sustainability program that both the event our team and some of the other teams now are implementing. And so really looking at, you know, how can we um, address our impacts? You know, so what's our climate action plan? What's our circularity plan? We're talking about the technology and the products and services we need. Um, you know, how do those products get to us? Uh, but then also, you know, what's the opportunity as ambassadors, as athletes, we've literally, you know, millions of followers. How can we educate and outreach? Uh, and also, how can we use our sort of operations and influence to um, for better purpose? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's a really uh, great example. And just coming back to the eDNA, the, we did a broad scan, uh, broad spectrum eDNA testing from Brazil to Newport, Rhode Island, our home base. Uh, and that was really about understanding along the route how many different species from the microplankton all the way up to larger species uh, were, um, you know, were in the water. And so these are just, you know, really small samples, whether it's, uh, you know, just literally chemical indicators that are picked up through this process. Uh, and then we did another eDNA project uh, in the Mediterranean, and this was species specific, looking for the Mediterranean mug seal, basically the most endangered pinniped seal in the world um, and understand very elusive and reclusive uh, and um, of course the scientists don't want to disturb them they're quite often living in caves uh, and so but through eDNA testing it's a very in invasive or non-invasive I should say um, way of of sampling about understanding where they are so you know when you think about sport and sailing or you know being out in the mountain or wherever you are you know there you know we have these quite unique and amazing opportunities. Uh, and I think that, you know, bring it all the way back to maybe more traditional sports, track and field, you know, ambassador, you know, sports people are ambassadors for something. And I think we can be ambassadors more than just for our own sport, 
or a specific product or sponsor or T-shirt or football boot. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, I think we need to start questioning ourselves, what products and services are we promoting through our sports? Mm -hmm. and, and are those products and services really uh, what we need? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think I totally agree. And I think it's really interesting. I, I think it was a really interesting pro, you know, program and project that, um, that, you know, was being incorporated into the, into the ocean race and the, you know, the work that you were doing, uh, you know, while you, while you were racing around the world. Um, and, and I'm really curious to know, like, you know, I don't think you have the answer to this, but, um, you know, I'm just putting this out there for the, you know, for the, for the, for the world, I guess, um, you know, now that we have this data and that we've been collecting so long, you know, we have to do something with it, right? Like we have all this data, we have to action, we have to like make it actionable and then actually take tangible, um, like tangible, do tangible things to address the issue now, right? We have this data, we know what's going on. Um, and, but yeah, so, you know, I think we need to, you know, obviously keep studying it and keep looking into it, but we, you know, we still do need to come up with a plan to actually target these things and, you know, hopefully, um, you know, this data does inform some of those decisions and, and you know, the actions can, that we need yeah, to take. I can, I, can, I can maybe give, um, I mean, what you're talking about is obviously the, you know, to to take um, to take action, you know, we need understanding and to have understanding, we need, we need measurement, we need data. Uh, and I can kind of maybe give you two, at least two specific examples of how we've done that as a team. And the first one I did mention, you know, we're a sport very much reliant on technology. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, literally, the boat we've been racing for the last five years is a 60 foot fully, almost fully foiling boat, um, uh, almost more resemblant to an airplane than a, than a sailing boat. Uh, and to build that requires, you know, high, um, you know, high modulus carbon fiber, resins, um, uh, uh, the products, you know, um, you know, our masts are made of carbon, the, the rudders, the keel made of, uh, you know, high tensile steel and lead. And all of these products have to come from somewhere and to be built. So in fact, to build a sort of more or less nine ton boat took about 34 tons of material. Uh, so the typical boat building process is extremely wasteful. That remaining 25 tons typically or, or quite often ends up in landfill, uh, which includes plugs and molds. I mean, when you think about building carbon component, in this case, a 60-foot boat, we're using a mold, uh, which you basically have the same size. Uh, and to build the mold, you use a male plug. And so basically, you don't sail in on the plug, you don't sail in the mold, and quite often they end up in landfill. That's extremely mm. wasteful. Uh, and so what we did was to implement from this outset of the project in 2019 a full life cycle assessment of the build of the boat, including all of the components uh, that that um, that uh, comprise the build, as well as uh, so basically, sort of as, as we would say, um, um, you know, product all the way to launch, um, and uh, uh, really understanding what the carbon footprint was of a boat build, uh, and especially for that class. What was interesting is that a previous team had done this in 2010, and we had a previous benchmark. And what we know that um, over the in, you know, intervening years from 2010 to 2020, the 10 years between the two builds, globally, um, this class, and it would be very sort of indicative of broader uh, of the broader sector, has actually increased their impacts. That's no surprise to anyone, I'm sure. But we put it, we've got a number in it, and we know where those impacts are. We've talked about the modes, but there are other, you know, the complexity of the designs. Um, the you know the process that, that goes into place to creating these foils and where does that 
all that waste carbon end up. And so we put an awful lot of effort into measuring so that we can understand the action needed. And a lot of that is about creating circularity for the carbon fiber. Um, sports, I think, will soon be the third. Or the, is, it is now the, sec, uh, the third. It will soon be the second um, the sector with, uh, with the largest use of carbon fiber. Um, and so we're still not at a stage where carbon fiber in our sector is at a scale that it's recyclable uh, at a scale which is useful for industry, uh, but we're getting there. And to make that happen, we need collaborations between the boatyards, between the sports, um, so that whether you've got a broken oar or, um, you know, or a broken hockey stick, uh, or a, or a mold from a sailboat, it all ends up in the one place being recycled and reused. Mm -hmm. uh, and also we need to start looking for more noble materials like flax, uh, which in many cases can be used to replace the carbon fiber, for instance, in the molds. Um, so there's, it's a com very complex topic, but it just describes again how measuring these things shows that in this case, we're not going in the right direction. We're nowhere near achieving net zero by 2030, et cetera, 2050. And then when you kind of come to ocean science and RE-DNA testing, it also describes another you know, risk that we have in our sector, which is where you know, we're sailing along through the world's oceans and biodiversity is under the surface, on the surface, and sometimes above the surface. And we you know, we see these amazing things, but unfortunately, sometimes we do have collisions, uh, specifically with marine mammals. And so understanding mm -hmm. where they are, you know, using eDNA testing as an example, or satellite um, uh, monitoring to identify where these species are, is super important to understand where those sectors are to avoid. And so really moving the conversation uh, of a space where we kind of, the athletes consider that we've got a right to sail anywhere in the ocean because it's a free space um, to a different and more modern and a kind of more respectful uh, understanding of the fact that, you know, there are places where we probably can sail and there are places where we should not sail. And this is really about moving again the conversation on putting us as places of, you know, uh, as um, athletes of, of ambassadors um, and, you know, taking into account that we have an opportunity to, to share what we see uh, and we need to do that um, by leading by example mm -hmm. yeah so i i i told yeah <laughs> i where do i even start um i i think yeah everything you're just talking about is absolutely amazing i think are really great and concrete examples of taking those taking you know taking the measurements taking you know um whatever and then turning into an actual action and then making a change but having it having that impact and then which will then filter into the rest of the system and you know as you say the recycling about the carbon fibers and things like that like that will have you know repercussions all around the sport industry that um that will be felt by all sports uh so i think it's incredible but and you know as you say uh or I, I, you know some of these things are very complex and so i guess like uh the, so where my mind where my mind was going was you know it seems that, you know, the 11th hour racing and the 11th hour racing team is quite far along in their sustainable sustainability journey. And so some of, and maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding or maybe I'm just, uh, um, wrong. Um, but so the, these, these things that you're talking about, they seem like they're like really far in advance, um, for someone just starting off in their sustainability journey. So I, I'm wondering if you could even just start by, 
are, if you could explain a little bit like where you started from and how you got to where you are and like, or if you have any tips for a sport, um, maybe not a whole sport league or like a whole entire sport, but like, you know, a sport team, like a, uh, a football team or a basketball team, like where, what are their first steps for sustainability? Where should they start? How should they start looking at it? What should they potentially measure first? Um, and, and where to go from there. And then maybe in this answer, you could talk a little bit about the, the sustainability toolbox that, that, uh, that 11th hour racing developed and that you developed. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I got into the, uh, the range of projects that we're doing and, and you, you nailed it, right. We're talking about the complexity of sustainability. I mean, when we think about corporate social responsibility, um, you know, of, you know, five or, you know, 10 or five or even a couple of years ago, we're talking really about environmental aspects and, you know, doing a little bit of additional good, um, uh, you know, through philanthropy or grant giving or, um, you know, sort of um, some corporate support to a program which touches the, the director's heart or the broader team. Uh, you know, sustainability today, you know, it really is that. It's about the economic, it's about the environmental, it's about the social aspects, and it's a hugely complex topic. And, you know, being humans, we typically are reductionists. We like to treat each one of these topics individually, but of course, that's not the real world. That's the way it works. You know, every, every one of these impacts, um, uh, you know, uh, impacts another, you know, so we can think about sort of single-use plastic bottles, but it's not just about the plastic. It's about the carbon. It's about the oil uh, used to make those plastics. It's about the water footprint of those products um, and, uh, you know, social inequities so linked to all of those. So sustainability is complex. Um, and this is where we came from um, in 2020. We started the campaign in 2019. It's our third campaign. So as you said, we've been privileged to be able to apply sustainability to a sports team and to achieve a certain level of maturity. And so in 2020, when we had the, you know, the pandemic, there was like a kind of a, an additional year added to our campaign. The, you know, 11th hour racing and, and our directors of the team said, well, you know, what do you guys want to do with the extra 12 months? It was like, this is amazing, you know, because this is a space again with so much work to do. And now we just have more time to do it uh, and we can reach out to, again, it's about how much can we get our arms around? How many uh, organizations through sustainable sourcing can we reach out to and influence? Uh, and so as we got into this in more detail, we realized that, you know, with my colleague, Amy Monroe, who's absolutely amazing at the work she does, and we work really well together, we realized that we turned up with our briefcases and our computers and had bespoke tools and experience that we'd gathered along the way and, and everything that goes with that. But again, it's atypical. It's unusual for a sports team at that time to have two sustainability um, staff uh, and to arrive with with a sort of a certain amount of experience and skills and tools. And so what we wanted to do was to um, create an accessible platform for any organization to implement sustainability A to Z, whatever their sector, and uh, not just sport, of course. Uh, and really, you know, when we think about sport and sustainability, you know, especially ourselves, but again, the technical sports, but all sports, you know, we've got all of these products and services that we use, and this is where we can have the biggest influence. So whether it's energy coming into a sports stadium, uh, transport systems arriving at those stadiums, transport and travel uh, required by athletes, the products. And so this is where our impact is. You know, scope three is where most of these impacts are. Uh, and so uh, we spent the full 12 months in 2020 plus 
working not only with our own um, sustainability and comms team, but also reaching out to some of our peers, top of their game, both in comms and sustainability to create this open access platform called the Toolbox, uh, toolbox.com, uh, sustainabilitytoolbox.com, and which really provides not only sort of, there are many guides out there, but most importantly, the tools, quite simple tools, you know, Excel or guidelines in PDF, uh, to take you from A to Z, you know, one of step one, you know, defining your starting point. Who are we? What are we doing? Um, what is our role in this sector? Um, step two, you know, establishing some sort of understanding of a sustainability policy, which will create a kind of a reference point for what we will be doing um, as an organization for the next period. Um, you know, step three, engaging stakeholders, right? So getting into this in more detail, right? So we if we have energy coming into the uh, organization, where is it coming from? Is that renewable? Do we have a sustainable sourcing code? And do we have a DEI, man you know, a DEI action plan? Um, you know, step three, identifying those key issues. So if we have a stadium, again, energy waste will be too high. You know, two things very high on the on the on the uh, uh, on sort of in terms of risk or, or opportunity. Uh, and again, both of those go together. Right. So we always think about, you know, risk as the impact, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to make change. Um, and then, you know, step four and five are really about identifying those issues and creating some specific goals and targets. And I think I mentioned it before, but, you know, barrier to action is trying to be perfect. Like just start, you know, you know, in terms of a family, you know, I kind of still go out and do the kind of great Canadian cleanup. And we sort of at the end of the winter season, we kind of go out and, and clean up our bit of a street, you know, and that's just about those first little steps. And, you know, I can see my kids going, hey, dad, come on, let's go. It's, uh, you know, it's May, you know, the, the street's dirty. And, and then they're teaching me, you know, uh, and so those small steps. And then really, how do we implement those? What resources do we need? And step six to create a specific action plan. We need resources. We need someone in charge. Uh, we need the time and the budget to implement it through the systems which are relevant for the organization. This is where we've made, I think, a, a big sh sort of um, sort of uh, gear shift from the previous across the campaigns where sustainability, even despite our very best efforts, was an anod program uh, a couple of campaigns ago where now the biggest success we have is actually educating and forming and providing our own staff and teams in their space to really you know, implement sustainability in ways which is relevant to them and leverages what they're doing. An example would be sustainable sourcing. One of our best buddies here is the finance department and through the spend system uh, and the expense um, you know, validation system, we now have a way to systematically look at the supply chain, where are we spending most money and which organizations should we focus on uh, as a priority? Uh, so that's just, just an example. Uh, or equally, you know, talking with the boat builders, you know, what's happening with the waste this Friday? You know, how much carbon is in there? You know, what are the other waste streams and what can we do with it? They know best how to deal with that. So that's about creating an action plan, which is internal to the team. And then again, of course, tracking progress over time. And this is, again, where embedding into the company's systems, which quite often just need to be adapted a little bit to uh, allow us to track those you know, waste streams or energy or whatever it is. And at the end, of course, the step eight is about communicating and reporting, collating all of that in a report so that we can identify 
where we've succeeded, maybe where we've underachieved and applying an action plan. So it's a very much a cyclical process. What's really exciting about the toolbox is that not only was it created as a result of the kind of collaboration, uh, it, it's really still represented in that format because it's on it's available for free on the Creative Commons. And we've done that with purpose rather than creating a licensed commercial product. It allows us to evolve over time with the input and the upload of new resources from our peers, because as we know, you know, sustainability uh, changes quickly uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and rightly so. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'll make sure that I link the uh, the website for sustainability toolbox in the show notes. So everybody listening can go find it there easily. Um, but yeah, I, I think that those steps that you've outlined and the sustainability toolbox are a, a, a extremely good ways to start someone for you for a, a sport industry or, you know, as you say, anybody to start on their sustainability journey. And um, yeah, it, it is really just about starting. And, you know, even if it's not perfect at first, you know, it is about making an effort, trying your best. And then, um, yeah, you know, those incremental changes will eventually lead to something much greater and much bigger. So, um, you know, obviously time is of the essence and we do have to, um, you know, we, we do have to start now, right? We, we can't wait any longer. Um, like it's a bit like planting a tree. They always say the best time to plant the tree was forty years ago. The next best <laughs> time is now, right? So, um, so yeah, let's let's get into it. And again, you know, perfection uh, is typically just gets in the way. You know, I think we can accept to be imperfect, and I certainly am. Uh, but you know, the amazing, I think, the sort of validation of the toolbox was first of all that we had all of these typically, you know, our peers from other teams and other organizations, other sustainability consultants going exactly what we need can we help to collaborate on that uh, and so we were we really identified a specific brand to um which was sort of agnostic to any one team or stakeholder that's the that's where the toolbox came from today it's across 95 different sectors outside of just sport uh in 120 different countries uh, and actually i will say it's in four different languages so french spanish portuguese and we're exploring exploring the the desire to have to make it available in other languages, uh, and we're already upward of um, you know 650 plus um, users, and you know users come from you know a B and B in South Africa that wants to apply some sustainability mm-hmm. to bigger organizations. One of those would be the Association of National Olympic Committees. They represent every single uh, Olympic committee in, in, in across the world. And we ran with them through, uh, with the support of Isaac Murray, the toolbox community manager. He delivered a, a toolbox series for the ANOC uh, community um, uh, throughout last year. And this is about helping them and helping their members to align and understand how to align with the UNF C sports for climate action goals. Uh, we now have, um, I can't remember exactly, but it's uh, quite a few hundred uh, signatories to the UNFCCC framework. Uh, and the challenge is all very well to sign up to a pledge, but okay, right. When the rubber hits the road, what do we have to do? And one of the requirements, actually the shift, um, well, last year it was very much sign up. And this year you have to have measured uh, your carbon footprint established, uh, compared it to the previous benchmark, established uh, a carbon reduction plan, um, and you know, and, and shown how this car- carbon pathway, climate action pathway, will lead towards um, you know net zero targets. And so, um, UNFCCC, um, the group, have have really um, uh, shifted from a pledge space to you know hard action. 
uh, and it's um, and um, you know the toolbox was was a part of that. So that was really inspiring. In fact, on the platform you can find a range of various case studies, and one of them is from um, the Association of National Com Olympic Committees how they use the toolbox, and it's a very simple process to establish their broader sustainability policy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think most the typical users of the toolbox uh, are SMEs. They're because these are organizations, especially in Europe now, that have specific requirements to um, sustainability report action and reporting, um, but don't always have the full resources to um, commission, uh, you know, a sustainability consultancy firm to, to to help them with the work. And so a lot of these smaller entities are, you know, looking around for the tools to do this. Uh, and other, what's really encouraging is that some of our peers, some of these sustainability consultancy firms who provide these services also use the toolbox as a way of demonstrating to their clients the simple process. Because again, it's a very complex topic, but when you break it down step by step and process by process, then it becomes, you know, accessible. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I totally agree. And um, I think it's really encouraging that, you know, uh, you know the, some of the organizations that you said had kind of started, you know, I guess, signing up for the sustainability toolbox and, and accessing those resources. I think it's really encouraging because I think there's still a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people who still need, I'm going to say persuading to, to, you know, take action to, um, to tackle this, to tackle this emergency. Um, and, and I, I'd, I'm, I'd be interested when you, when you say persuasion, I, I, I'd love to know your opinion on this is in that I again, it kind of comes back to one of the first conversations, which is like, do we do we even speak to people like that? But I think that's where, like, I you know, I firmly believe yes, like with a big why, because uh, because you know, even if they're not convinced, or uh, there might even actually be you know, like really sort of you know, <laughs> on the extreme, you know, most people when they get on the journey, even if it's sort of grumpily walking down the road with their pigs picking up uh, with their kids. Picking up trash, um, you know, you can't help but once you're on the journey to get, you know, to get convinced at least at a certain level. Um, and I think you know the journey as well is about, and especially when we kind of identify the risks and opportunities we have as an individual organization, especially that. Well, I think this is especially true for the bigger corporation. There's a requirement to be comprehensive in our approach and to do everything have an answer for everything and to be you know what's your DEI action plan you know what's your climate action plan what's your waste and circularity plan and you know you probably need to have some sort of plan or at least an answer mm -hmm. too and that answer you know probably no longer at the corporate level but certainly for the SMEs uh, it can it's okay to say listen right now we're focusing on this because this is our biggest risk this is where we have the resources to do something uh, and you know, so I think again, it's about the journey. We don't have to do everything up front, and I think most importantly, we must be very comfortable to focus on our skill set, on the resources we have, the sector, and the influence that we have to operate in, uh, and try not to be sort of everything to everyone. No, ab absolutely, and I, and um, and I think that's part of the power that sport has. It does have, uh, you know, it is able to speak to people, and even necessarily don't even if you know, um fans don't necessarily know you know by going to the stadium that's powered by renewable energy they may, you know they may not know the full extent of some of the sustainability efforts that that team is is undertaking but they are no still they are in a way um still participating in it and so i think i think teams can take a more proactive 
approach to talking about these issues and talking about like what they are doing to address it. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, waste reduction at their, at their arenas or stadiums. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I think sport has the power to sort of initiate those conversations and bring more people and, you know, the people who need persuading <laughs> into the conversation a bit more and, and, um, driving that conversation further and further. And until, you know, we finally reach sort of that, you know, that tipping point, I, and I think maybe we've already passed it, or maybe we're coming up close to it, that tipping point where it's going to happen no matter what, no matter what, you know, how many people are still against it. Um, it, you know, it's, it's so yeah, little by little, I think sport teams do have that capacity to, to take up that, to take up that, uh, that, that, that baton and, and pass it on. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, when we're thinking, I mean, I, we're just thinking about the sort of stadiums and the built infrastructure. I think, you know, this is an example, for instance, maybe now, uh, I mean, I've been to a few conferences now, and uh, you know, especially in North America, where some of these stadiums and, and infrastructure, like the Viking Stadium, you know, and you know, they've got these amazing waste treatment systems. It's just like enviable. It's just like you know, we're, we're in a very much a sort of a gig economy with the sailing sector because we kind of move from one stop over to the next, and you persuade the local city. Uh, you know, the ocean race uh, through Megan Jones, who's really a leader in, in event sustainable event management, does an amazing job of of dragging, screaming, screaming and kicking these various organizations into implementing, you know, um, sort of one-off solutions for sustainability in their city when we're there. Um, but, you know, kind of rolling it back to the, maybe more of the built environment, uh, they're leaders in that space, but uh, the, the risk, I guess, the pitfall of being just sort of a, a an expert in your, in your expert, in your, in your area is that, uh, you know, you kind of don't go beyond that. And I really feel that the stadiums now need to, especially the new stadiums with plans to be built or refurbished, need to kind of up the ante as an example, right? So this is kind of where we need to kind of go beyond the small steps. Okay, the waste is done, but like, you know, next time we're talking about, you know, stadiums and in the built infrastructure, we need to be looking at renewable energy, we need to be looking at transport systems to get fans in and out. And if, you know, if they are building, like kind of what kind of concrete or materials are we using? Is it, you know, is it um, carbon charged concrete or is it uh, more noble products? Uh, and I think, um, uh, you know, this is just one example. Uh, I may be pointing the finger here, uh, but I'm very happy to point it back to our sector. But, you know, this is one example of where we need to step, step beyond these first initial steps and kind of up the ante. And there's some great examples out there. Um, you know, other examples would be Forest Green Rovers, the soccer team in the UK, uh, who are really using their um, their whole fan base and their athletes themselves to uh, to you know bring sustainability from the stadium back into the home. And that's really what we are trying to achieve in our sector: is look at our risks of major, you know, our major impacts. Boat building is one of them. You know, um, you know the how we implement part time or you know or sort of one off sustainability in these uh, movable events. What happens on the race course, and how can we use our existence and our presence on the ocean to bring home what very very few people see? Mm -hmm. I totally agree, and um, we're running out of time now. So I just wanted to, you know, first off, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing um, all these insights. And I think it was, you know, we definitely covered a lot of ground from philanthropy and sponsorships to, um, you know, to, to to metrics and what you're doing with the eleventh eleventh uh, hour racing team and and sustainability first steps for others uh, to start taking. And so I always end off with a question. Um, so and, you know, we maybe start answering it a little bit at the end there, but. 
Um, what do you believe the power of sport is? Maybe I can give you two answers to this. I think the power, but also the risk. I think the power obviously is our reach. Right? I mean, it's just clearly obvious. I think, um, you know, we're, we, uh, you know, we're represented through the media in, uh, you know, in, 90% of homes, right? People are listening to us. And and, and I think that's the opportunity. Um, and I think the opportunity is then to give them a message and give them inspiration, even more importantly, because it's not about preaching, but really giving them inspiration through our own actions as to you know, how we can how we can have fun, how we can explore opportunities and you know make the most out of this. And, and I think you know we all have a role to play. We are both we're always all part of some sort of family. We, uh, we've impacts at home, decisions to make at home. And we're also employees and employers. Uh, and we also you know, purchase and, and, um, and procure products and services. And all of these are opportunities to make decisions. We make decisions every second of the day. And I think it's about really using those decisions as moments to um, be courageous. Let's be brave. I, I think I kind of just leave with that. You know, I mean, we can kind of break it down to, you know, renewable energy, sustainable sourcing. But I think as athletes, we're brave. Uh, and I think we should share that courage with, you know, display and share that courage with uh, those that follow us. Amazing. Well, Damien, once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think the conversation um, was very much worthwhile and, um, you know, really, really interesting. So thank, thank you so much. Yeah, super, David. Merci. Thank you. And uh, look forward to catching up again, maybe uh, in the middle of Kenya or one side or the other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you once again to Damien for coming on the podcast to talk about um, all the work that 11th, a 11th Hour Racing team is doing in terms of sustainability. And I think it's a great uh, role model for other teams and other sport organizations and, and others outside the sport industry um, to look at and, and really think about how they can start um, making changes and working towards a more sustainable a sustainable operating model. Now, some of my, some of my takeaways... Um, the first one is, you know, Damien touched it on really briefly, and we didn't really dive into it that much. But this idea of the need, the need to dismantle uh, some of our structures, our systems, our operations, and our ways of doing things, um, you know, if they're not sustainable, if they're not achieving the result that we need, we need to um, be able to kill our darlings. You know, we we need to be able to look at it critically and say this is not working this is not how you need to be doing things so we have to sometimes we have to deconstruct and and restart from the beginning so i think that's my first key takeaway and my second one is um you know just thinking back to the conversation and um yes you know damien did say that he you know there was two people who came from a background of sustainability um for for the lemus hour racing team so they I don't want to say they had a head start, but they, you know, they obviously they had a lot of expertise and knowledge behind them to be able to do this work. And so I guess I'm just thinking as organizations are making some cuts in terms of budgets, um, because in some countries around the world, 
I just hope that this is not going to be something that's cut. You know, we we now is not the time to be cutting our uh, budgets for sustainability and environmental efforts. We need to be ramping those budgets up uh, and to achieve our net zero goals by 2050. Um, so I, 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 that's kind of one of my key takeaways. And I just think that, um, you know, even if, even if you don't have all the expertise in house right now, sport and sport organizations need to be moving towards that and, and finding those expertise and bringing them, bringing them in house and, and sharing that knowledge with other sport organizations to, um, to make those changes. So that is it for this very first episode of season four. Um, we are so excited to be back for tw- for the twenty twenty uh, for twenty twenty four, and um, yeah, so that is it for now, and, and we will talk with you next time.